0: Acts first, before we turn to the Gospel of Mark, I want to have you look at a passage in Acts. Well, anyway, what a setup that was that our brother just read in the book of Nehemiah. Um, I wonder how close we come as a congregation of people who are about to hear the Word, and about me, an Ezra-type priest, so to speak, who's going to open up the Scriptures. May the Lord, together both in the preaching and in the hearing of the Word, that we may get into a spirit of worshipfulness this morning as we draw near to the Lord. Turn now with me to the book of Acts chapter 10, verse 36 to 38. This is sort of a summary, you could say, of the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. Acts 10, verse 36 to 38. As for the word that He sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed "...by the devil, for God was with him." Now the other reading, go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, in verse number 1. Mark, chapter 1, in verse 1. In the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word I have something to say to you. If anybody has read the Gospel of Mark this week, uh, do you have a central theme that you think the Gospel of Mark portrays? Does anybody want to volunteer with that? Okay. Well, anyway, uh, this is my choice. Mark's unique profile. Mark's unique profile of Jesus. How many of you have been saved in the last year? Would you raise your hand if you've been saved in the last year? How about the last two years? Raise your hand. The last three years? Raise your hand. We need to get preaching the gospel, brothers and sisters. (laughs) Is anybody saved in this room? (laughs) Amen. Okay. Well, here's the question I want to ask you. Yes, I wanted to ask you, how long have you been saved? Some of you have been saved 5 years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. I don't think anybody over 50, possibly, but likely not. That's a lot of years. And I want to ask you this question, how well do you know Jesus? Those of you that have been married 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 plus years, I know you know your spouse, don't you? You know your spouse better now than you did after the first, second, third, fourth, or fifth years. You know your spouse very well. Some of you that have been in this church a long time, we've gotten to know each other quite well. But the biggest question is, you've known Jesus this amount of time, how well do you know Him? Is that a good question? How well do you know Him? Do you know Him better now After so many years of being a Christian, and that's when your spiritual life began, that's when you really got introduced to Jesus was when you were converted. Prior to that, you only knew Him after the flesh. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.16. Though we have known Christ after the flesh, now henceforth know we Him no more after the flesh. One of the songwriters sang it this way, I got to know Him in a better way. I got to know Him in a better way. And when you come to saving faith in Christ, you are brought into a personal relationship with Jesus. We sing the song, What a friend we have in Jesus. He's our friend. He's the lover of our soul. He's meaningful to me. More meaningful to me than even my wife, who's the most meaningful person to me on earth. Jesus is even more meaningful to me. And He should be to you. We must treasure, cherish the Lord Jesus. He is our treasure. It's invaluable that we grow in knowledge of Him and learn of Him. Didn't Jesus say those words, "Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly and hot, and you shall find rest unto your souls." Let us ask ourselves the question: Are we learning of Him? Are we learning of him? How well do we know Him? We've all gone to funerals, right? And usually in funerals, there's a space of time that's often given in the funeral service for family members, close friends, to possibly give a brief reflection on their loved one that has died. And one will give a little bit about this deceased person, some specific area of his life that he... Was familiar with about him. Someone else will give something else about that person. Someone else will say something else. They're all true, but they're all looking at it from, at this deceased person from different vantage points. Things that they remember. Keep that in mind because that's a good way for us to understand how there are four biographies of Jesus. Mark wrote a certain way. Luke wrote a certain way. John wrote a certain way. And Matthew wrote a certain way. About Jesus. Their reflections about Jesus. I have to go to a conference next month. And uh, our brother John Riesinger, as you know, went to be with the Lord back a number of months ago. And uh, at the conference, they want to have a little time where they can remember brother John. And being a friend of John's, I was asked to be one of the speakers and give my thoughts about John, what I remember about him. And there are going to be several others. And I'm sure what I'm going to say is going to be slightly different than what others are going to say. But we're all probably going to be unified in what we will say about this dear departed servant of the Lord. That's why we have four biographies of Jesus written by four different individuals. John himself was an apostle. He describes Himself as that disciple who Jesus loved. What a a way of defining oneself. I'm that one who Jesus loved. Happened to be the one that Jesus leaned on His breast as well, but He describes Himself as one upon whom Jesus loved. Luke is described as being Luke the physician. He accompanied Paul. He describes Jesus as the Son of Man. John describes Jesus as the Son of God. That's, that's the emphasis of those two particular authors. Matthew was an apostle as well. He was a tax collector. So we have a tax collector. We have a physician. We have an apostle who's a disciple whom Jesus loved. But now when we get to the Gospel of Mark, which is going to get our attention this morning, who is Mark? Well, he's young. He's a young associate of Peter. He's a cousin of Barnabas. He accompanies Paul on his missionary journeys. His mother is the one that has a prayer meeting in her home that's mentioned in Acts chapter 12. He's called spiritually by Peter himself my son in 1 Peter chapter 5. Some commentators are conclusive that Peter's influence on Mark is what gave Mark the impetus to write what he did about Jesus. He collected a lot of information about Jesus from Peter. Of course, this is all under the auspices of the Holy Spirit's Leading of Mark, as well as all of the others of the Bible, for that matter. But John Mark is his name in the Book of Acts. John Mark. John is the Hebrew name. Mark is the Gentile name. And he takes the name Mark as he addresses his audience in the Gospel of Mark. Who is John writing to? John, excuse me. Who is well, John Mark? Who is Mark writing to? Mark is writing likely to Gentiles. Likely from Rome in the 60's. It's believed that Mark's Gospel was the first of the three other Gospels that were written. And we're going to talk a little bit about the material in Mark versus the other synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered the synoptics because they are similar to one another. And they summarize the life of Jesus in the same ways, and a lot of the same materials are included in all three of them. But there are differences, and I would like to bring those to your attention in a short moment or two. So the Gentiles are his target audience. It's obvious from the, from the standpoint that he omits uh, he genealogies, whereas Matthew and Luke, they have a genealogy of Jesus. It's important to the audiences of Luke and Matthew to prove that Jesus was a real person that came from the lineage in a pedigree of Jewish origin in the flesh, of course. He writes favorably about the Gentiles. He explains, Gentiles would need this, explanations of who the Sadducees and the Pharisees are. He explains the meaning of Aramaic words which no uh, Hebrew reader would have any difficulty with, but Gentiles would have difficulty, so Mark takes the effort in explaining those words. Of all, the Gospel it has the fewest of Old Testament quotations in it. Mark's Gospel is compact. It's vivid. It's orderly. Things move along crisply. There's 66, excuse me, 661 verses in the Gospel of Mark. Luke has 1147 verses and Matthew has 1065 verses. Mark therefore is almost half the length of Luke in over 400 verses shorter than the Gospel of Matthew contains only 16 chapters, whereas Matthew's 28, Luke is 24. What does Mark portray in the Gospel of Mark about Jesus? He is a servant. Deeds are more recorded than words. Some of you that may have a red letter edition, if you compared Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would see that Mark has the least of the sayings of Jesus because... Mark packs in all of these miracles. A total of 18. It's always action. The word straightway, which means quickly or suddenly, is used 40 different times along with other words that talk about speediness in response. And that's why we believe that the Gospel of Mark is a Gospel about the servanthood of the Lord Jesus now, what's interesting about the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospel, is how they compare with one another. It's believed, first of all, that Mark was the first Gospel written in the 60s. Matthew and Luke would have come in the 70s, and maybe even late 70s or possibly 80-ish for the Gospel of Luke. And it's believed by some who try to figure these things out, that Mark was probably sort of like the base... Uh, Text of the Gospels that were borrowed by Matthew and Luke, taking some of Mark's material and incorporating it in their Gospel account. That we can only speculate about. But what I find is most interesting, and I think this is what what highlights how we can get to what is Mark after in his Gospel... What Mark says that the other Gospels don't say, I think is worthy of note. And let me give you some examples that might surprise you as they did me. The man that was paralyzed that was brought to the house where Jesus was, it was so crowded, remember that they had to break the roof to let him down? Only Mark says that there were four men that carried him. When Jesus was asleep in the boat, Mark says that Jesus slept on a pillow. Only Mark. The feeding of the thousands in the grass, it says in Mark only that the grass was green. The girl who Jesus raised from the dead, only in Mark tells us the age of that girl. She was twelve. There are various references to Jesus' looks and gestures. Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark, is called not the carpenter's son, but the what? The carpenter. Luke, Matthew, or John don't mention Jesus as the carpenter. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, it says... He was with, only in Mark it says, was with the wild beasts. When they took Jesus from the boat, it says they took Him as He was. Mark 4.36 When Jesus invites the little children to come to Him and they come, only in Mark does it say He took the child in His arms. When Jesus approaches the fig tree, it says He went to it, the King James says, if haply He might find some fruit thereon. Only the Gospel of Mark refers to those self-imposed limitations that Jesus placed upon Himself. Of course, He's God in the flesh. And He's approaching a fig tree as a divine being. Of course, He would know in advance whether there was fruit on the tree or not, but yet the Gospel of Mark portrays Jesus as going there, not knowing what he's going to find, unexpectedly. Will there be fruit on the tree? In Mark 16 it says when Jesus rose from the dead, he tells, the angel tells Peter, tells the, uh, the woman, go tell the disciples and Peter, and Peter, that that He's risen from the dead. Only in Mark does it say, after they had celebrated the the Passover, then the Lord's Supper, it says about the Lord Jesus, He sung a hymn and went out. Sung a hymn. Interesting features, aren't they? In the 14th chapter, in Gethsemane, what a scene Gethsemane is, In Gethsemane, Jesus' agony is portrayed as being the most agonizing of all the other Gospels. Now, granted, in Luke it says that He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. That certainly highlights the kind of Tension you could say Jesus was experiencing as he was reflecting on the crucifixion that he was about to endure. But in Math in Mark it says this quote about Jesus, saying, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, deeply distressed and troubled. And he says very bluntly in his prayer to the Father, Take away this cup from me. It's in Mark where we have that expression by the father who brings his son to Jesus. And Jesus tells him if you'd only believe and the father's response is and this is a typical one I think for all of us, Lord I believe but help thou my unbelief. Does anybody have unbelief? I think we all have to stretch our hands a bit to admit that we do have some degree at times of unbelief. I believe, amen to that. But we still have unbelief. These, I think, highlight points about the Gospel of Mark. And it shows to us, I think, His real humanity, the real personhood of the Lord Jesus. And what I'm particularly driving at this morning is, as I begin, how well do you know Jesus? How are you going to learn of Him? Is it just by going through life and and letting life's experiences be your, your teacher? And you learn like you learn wisdom. You learn by experience. Is that how we learn about Jesus? Jesus' exhortation is to take up your cross daily and follow Me. Following Him and learning of Him go together. How do we learn of Him? Are we learning of Him? Well, the best place to learn about Him is to go about Him where He is found most prolifically and that would be in the Gospels themselves. I think sometimes in a church like ours, we can exaggerate the importance of the epistles and minimize the value of the Gospels. Am I right on that? I think as as a whole that's true. We all love Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians. Man, we love it because we're getting Christian doctrine. We're learning practical truth for the Christian life. But wait a minute. It all springs from the person of the Lord Jesus. We're not just learning doctrines and rules and what Christian life should be lived like. Paul says, be ye imitators of me as I am of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Paul says, we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Changed to be what? Like the Lord of Glory. In Romans 8.29, it says He's predestinated us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Is that a goal of yours and mine? Or do we just want to be what we want to be? And I think it's an important question for us to ask it this way. Where do we get our greatest influences in our lives? This is an important one. Who are you learning from? Who are your role models? And I think all of us in some way have somebody in our life that we're intimately associated with that affects the way we want to be. The question is, in what position is Jesus in the influential people in our lives? Where does he stand in that line of influence? We are obviously influenced by a parent. Could be good, could be bad. Hopefully we're picking in people things that are worthy of imitating. And we could be imitating a parent, which is, I, I, I'm, there's nothing wrong with that. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So when we read about the life of Paul, or we read about the life of Moses or Abraham, all these Old Testament figures who we read about in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it says about all of them, whose faith follow? But more importantly than all of those figures is the one that we want to highlight today. But who is it that influences you the most? Is it a friend? A friend that you sort of look up to? I remember in college, one one he was a roommate of mine. It seemed like every time I went to a store and bought a piece of clothing, he would want to go and buy the same kind of clothing. You know, I got the nice bell bottoms; he wanted the bell bottom. I got the flower shirts; he had to get the flower shirt. I got the farmer's outfit with the suspenders; he got the same outfits. I'm thinking, man, I, but it made me uncomfortable, but it also made me realize that he's. I'm impacting Him in some ways. And we are doing that to one another. We're impacting each other in some ways. And the best way in which we can impact one another is to be Christ-like. Now, I think sometimes we think that being Christ-like means being kind of like a man on the moon. Like, you know, that's like craziness. Like, how do you be like Jesus in the real world of the 21st century? Where things are so different than they were when Jesus was here on earth. Well, what does Hebrews mean when it says in chapter 13 verse 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever? What's today? Can we read that verse and say today means the 21st century? I think young people can get sullen and deadened about being a Christ follower because it's not like a 21st century person should be living. We should say, who cares about what people think or say? We want to follow Jesus. It wasn't an easy path that He took, obviously. And it's not expected for us to be an easy path either to follow Him. But praise God, we have working within us the Spirit of God. God has empowered us, installed us with the Spirit of Christ so that we can mimic the Lord Jesus. And I want to, as I have been personally challenged by, what do I know about Jesus? When I read these different things, how He fed the 5,000, the compassion He had on the multitude when He saw that they were like sheep, Uh, uh, that had gone astray. And when I see uh, when people were brought to Him and He was asked to do this or to do that, man, He was always, always willing to sacrifice His time, His energy, and He put effort into bringing about these many blessings. It says in Acts, as we read earlier, He went about doing good. And healing all that were oppressed of the devil. What a good model that is for you and I. Go about doing good and healing all who are oppressed. Oppressed. Jesus' first sermon was, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That same Spirit that was on Him, like it was on Moses, that went on all the other leaders of Israel, that same Spirit on Christ, the Holy Spirit, has now been distributed upon you. Whether we believe it or not, that's a fact. We may not feel it, because we're maybe not digging in the world we're maybe not on our knees enough maybe we're not meditating enough maybe we're not having enough Christian environment around us and even in the workplace on the way to work uh, in the home whatever we need to saturate ourselves with the word and I want us this morning to be encouraged to learn about Jesus Jesus Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, phenomenal. Let's learn about Jesus. We can't, of course, do the miracles that He did. It would be nice if we could turn water into wine, if we could walk on water, if we could raise the dead and give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. Wow, what what a crop we would get around ourselves. I'm not against all of that. I just don't know that it's really happening today as it did in the first century and in the lives of the apostles who succeeded Jesus after he departed. There are a lot of claims by modern day TV evangelists of uh, healings and so on that are going on, but keep in mind those are always done almost exclusively in artificial environments where the temperature of expectation is raised to such a level that it almost becomes sort of like a mind over matter. I won't get into all of that, but I I do have strong reasons why I think that a lot of the, the modern hyper-Pentecostal movement has been fueled by a hype that goes on in a lot of these big healing services and, and expectations lead to some sort of false false reality that may happen in someone's life. Anyway, let's turn, if you would with me, to the book of Mark again, chapter 7, and read with me verse 31 to 35. I just want you to see, again, and this is a portion that is not found in Matthew or in Luke. And what I gave you was not all of the differences or additions, you could say, that Mark provides in contrast to Matthew or Luke. There are more. I tried to give you what I thought were some of the highlighted ones, in my opinion, that sort of bring out some things about about Mark's uh, slant uh, in, in his Gospel. But look at Mark chapter 7, in verse 31. Then He, that's Jesus, turned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to Him a man who was deaf, and had a speech impediment. And they begged Him to lay His hand on Him. And taking Him aside from the crowd privately, He put His fingers into His ears after spitting, touched His tongue. And looking up to heaven, He sighed and said, Ephatha. Ephatha. That is... Here again is one of those examples where Mark is giving the meaning of the Aramaic word, Be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now, this is very peculiar, isn't it? He takes them aside, privately. He puts his fingers into the ears of the deaf person. He spits and then touches his tongue. What can we learn from something like this? First of all, there are no two cases of blind men's healings that are the same in the Gospel accounts. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. Um, With uh, Bartimaeus, he says, um, your faith has made you whole. John chapter 9, he says, go to the pool of Siloam, and washed there how easy would it have been for Jesus who had this man who couldn't hear was an impotent we would say deaf and dumb couldn't speak Jesus could have just said be whole or be healed he could have prayed to God the Father his Father says Father, heal this man He could have laid hands upon him in the Bible, as he says later, and the sick will recover. He could have done it instantly. My point here, I think, in Mark, I believe, is bringing this out. The effort that Jesus put into bringing about a cure in the man's life. Notice all these technical moves of Jesus. Has Takes the individual privately aside... Probably away from the fanfare. They may have been looking on Jesus as if, let's see how the magician's going to handle this one. Let's see if he really can do it. Jesus wasn't out to try to put on a show for anybody. Even when Herod, the great Herod the King, hoped to see some miracle done by Jesus, Jesus, it says, did not open his mouth. Didn't say a word. Didn't do anything to impress him. He was the one that had the least importance upon impressing people of anybody that ever lived. He takes them aside privately and He takes His fingers and puts them into His ears. And Jesus spits. I don't think He spit in His face or spit in His eyes. It just says He spit. Now, spit in the Bible is always a negative. It's an unclean thing. If I spat at you you would be instantly unclean. I think I could probably reach you too. <laughs> That's why sometimes in the front rows, you ever gone to, uh, you know, some of these Broadway uh, shows they have and they have people get back a little bit because the speaker might get his spittle on you. Well anyway, spittle in the Old Testament was classified as unclean. If you had spittle on you, you had to go to a rite of purification. There was nothing, ag- they spit at Jesus. That was a way of condemning Him. That was a way of desecrating Him. That was despicable. That was like garbage. Now when Jesus spits, it's another story. Because the Bible says of Him, He did no sin, He knew no sin, and in Him was no sin. Spit. In the Gospel of John, He spits on the ground, and with it, He mingles the spit with the dirt and makes some mud and he anoints the eyes of the blind man and says to him go and wash in the pool of Siloam and he does and his sight instantly returns to him again there's the spittle of the Lord Jesus wouldn't we like to be spit upon by the Lord the Lord and I don't say that he spat at him But it's possible. I don't know. It just says he spit. And then after he spits, he touches his tongue. I can see the ears to open them out. I can see the tongue being touched so that he could speak. Just not sure where I could put the spit. That's all I want to say at least is that there's some actions here. In Mark is the gospel of Jesus being an action figure. It's not just the word. It's the action, the effort, the sympathy that He put into what He did. He, he worked on Him, as it were. He operated on Him in a divine way and brought about the miraculous cure for Him. And then one other one I want to give to you is in the 8th chapter. And that's verse number 22. There you go. Acts 8. Excuse me, Mark 8.22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him... Now, that might be the answer to what we were just asking when Jesus spit. Did he spit on his eyes? Possibly so. Because of what this says, might be inclined to think that way spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him and asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, uh, this man apparently was not born blind. Because how would he know what a tree would look like? Or how would he know what people would look like? It's likely, therefore, that he may have had sighted an early Sort of like our brother Jonathan back there. John, I'm sure you remember things from your first 15 years that they've never been erased from your mind. And if we describe to you what a, a car or uh, a house or some something, an animal, you know what they look like because you have that figure embedded in your mind. Well, this man, when he opens his eyes, and Jesus has done similar things to what He did to the one before... He says, open your eyes, what do you see? And he could say, I see men as trees walking. In other words, it was blurry. I would say blurry and it was, it was not clearly configured for him to be able to define what he was seeing. And then it says, let's read on the next verse. Then 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. And he opened his eyes And his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Two attempts by Christ. You might say, is Jesus an inadequate healer? To have to have a two-stage healing for healing of this blind man? What's that all about? Is he inferior to a healer in that he has to go about it in this fashion? Just think of yourself as a blind person, spiritually. Isn't that what John Newton sang? Once, I was blind, but now I see. What is our vision like? Might we need a second touch of the Lord in our lives? You know, I think sometimes, and I bet a group of you at least in this body of people that are here today might say, I'm not sure when I was saved. I think I might have been saved when I was 14 years old, but then when I was around 30, a dramatic change happened in my life where I really started living the life. God just seemed to like overpower me and infuse in me a hunger and thirst for the reading of the Word, to witness to people, to pray, and it and I'm not denying that I wasn't touched the first time. But the second time, I began to see things clearly. Can anybody say amen to what I'm thinking about here? What I'm, what I'm telling you? I think in some cases there are those first touches and second touches. Now, Jesus didn't say, oh, you don't see, you don't see men for men, but you see them as trees. All right, it didn't work. Forget it. He that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I think sometimes Christians need a second touch. And I'm not talking about a second blessing here. I'm not talking about a second baptism. Don't. I'm not trying to give that theological perspective. But I do think there is something to a second touch. I guess I could say, and this is not something I prepared to say, but I think the Lord touched me in 1971. From... Matthew 6.19 Lay not of yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And that verse had an amazing impact on me. Because from that day on, and I could never understand it, every day I would wake up thinking about Jesus. And I said to myself, what is going on? Why am I thinking about Jesus all the time? I was just going into college. Those glorious years, you know, where you're going to really like spread your wings. You're going to So you wrote, wherever I went, and there weren't good places many of the times, I couldn't get Jesus off my mind. And I couldn't stop reading the Bible either. I wanted to read the Bible. But then in 1975... From Isaiah 53, 5, in a little home kind of Bible gathering, evangelistic type of a gathering, the Lord used verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. Well, that was the second touch for me. The second touch for me. I'm like, wow, I see clearly now. And when I went to the nightclub that night, I'm like, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. These aren't the people that I want to associate with. These aren't the things that I want to do. And I marched out of there and I never went back. Because I found a sweeter story. I found a truer gain. And what a difference that second touch meant. Now, the Lord wasn't going to leave me untouched a second time. I don't want to uh, emphasize or exaggerate the second touch to the degree and say, well, maybe I'm only a first-touch Christian. I'd be up the creek, I think, if I uh, had a two-tier kind of Christian atmosphere here with, with the one-touch Christian and the two-touch Christian. Uh, that would be faulty for sure. It could cause some division. Uh, but nevertheless, the Bible does describe people as being more spiritually mature than others. And some might be like the Corinthians. I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So, I think in a general way, we can all say, Lord, keep touching me. Give me that touch. But more than all of what I've said, what I want to drill home for us today is Jesus saying, learn of me. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Mark, today, we learn about Jesus. So many different things. When that father had brought his son to the disciples and they they could not help the situation, they bring the child to Jesus and the father complains and says, I brought my son who's vomiting, who's being overpowered by demonic powers, and your disciples couldn't do anything. And he says to Jesus, if you can help us, take pity on us. And Jesus said, I like the ESV here. It says, if you can, exclamation point, Jesus is saying in in paraphrase form, if I can, do you know who you're talking to? If I can, if I can? And he says, everything is possible for him who believes. You don't think you can live the Christian life. That was one of my biggest hindrances when I was reading the Bible in those college years. I'm like, man, I can't live like that. I'm a college kid. I'm an athlete. I've got girls. I've got cars. I've got money. I can't live like that. Until, until... The Lord showed me that everything is possible for him who believes. How could God turn a wild, woolly, college, crazy kid that I was into a child of the living God that wanted to love Him and live for Him? Took away the immoralities in my life, the vulgarities in my life. I give God the glory. I've got nothing to praise myself for whatsoever because for three years I struggled with the one touch I seemed like I knew about Jesus but I didn't have Him in a way as a Lord of my life and when that Lordship of Jesus entered into my life it was like take the world but give me Jesus let's give it up for Him He deserves it all let's follow Him let's dig in the Gospels let's learn about our Lord Jesus Paul says, if so be it, I've heard him and have been taught by him, even as the truth is in Jesus. In Colossians he says, all the treasures of, uh, of God are in Christ. All the treasures. And that's what we want. Let's take, let's take his cross. Let's follow him. Let us have him touch us. Let us bring ourselves into his presence. Let us hear his voice. Let us feel his touch. Let us be affected by him so that we can say. And you know how Mark describes himself? I mentioned that John described himself how? As that disciple upon whom Jesus leaned. Mark describes himself in the 15th chapter as that young man who was stripped and went away naked. Do you remember that? That, again, is another one of Mark's unique sayings about this young man that was following Jesus. Following Him all the way to His interrogation with the high priest and Pilate. And while he was following closely Jesus, apparently, they must have tried to uh, apprehend Him. And in doing so, they ripped His clothes right off Him. And it says that the young man went away naked. It's believed that Mark is describing himself. Wow. What cost is uh, is it for us to follow Jesus? That's a good question. Mark's a wonderful gospel and a wonderful example. Let's bow our heads in prayer.